morning. Good. Good morning, everybody. Uh, man, this is awesome. This is my first opportunity to preach to a full room. Missed this. This is crazy. Brett just leaned over to me during one of the, one of the worship songs. He's like, nothing beats it. Um, and so, yeah, it's really, really good to see you guys. I want to start today by, uh, wealth, uh, by wishing a happy birthday to a special friend of mine, Savannah. Is turning 12 today, and so happy birthday, Savannah. We're not going to sing to her, but can we just say happy birthday to Savannah on the count of three? One, two, three. Happy birthday, Savannah. <laughs> We're really glad that you're here and part of this family here at SDS today. So uh, listen, really good to see you guys. Uh, let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump into first service. God, thank you so much for this morning. Grateful for your love and your care and kindness and your mercy, God. Grateful for the chance to just sing about it um, and to lift it up to you. We pray now that you would use your word uh, to speak to us, to mold us, to shape us, to convict us, to draw us nearer to you um, and to... Uh, based all we believe and all we say and all we claim um, upon uh, the true doctrine of Jesus Christ and your word to us. So God, we ask that you do this work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, at the rate that we're going, taking about two verses a week, we'll be here for quite a while. Uh, maybe it'll uh, you know speed up at some point in time, but we're looking at verses 3 and 4 mainly today. And... Uh, um, my parents are visiting this week, uh, this weekend, we had a little celebration going on, and my mom was telling me that as they were driving in uh, from where they live, um, they passed a truck, and this truck had these flags flying off of the back of it, um, and these flags um, had this big, strong, overt profanity uh, for our new president and everyone who voted for him. Okay, and so if you did, then you were probably quite offended at the flag, and if you didn't, you probably said amen to the flag. I don't know, I don't know where you stand on this stuff, but anyways, um, that's a small example, minor example, but as much as I would have hoped that a new year and a, uh, a finally the election season being done, that things would calm down a little bit, that there would be, um, you know, kind of a, a downward trend now with the volatility that it seems to uh, summarize our culture, but it doesn't seem to be going that way, does it? I don't know about what you think, right? Um, but um, even so, it always helps me. Um, you know, even when I think about how it might feel like unprecedented times here now uh, in American history, certainly in Adam Connor history, you know, things are very different now than in the last 34 years, 34 years ago. But it always helps me to remember that this isn't anything new. Anything we're experiencing is not new to in the span of human history. In fact, Timothy here in Ephesus is dealing with a lot of the same things. A lot of the same things. But either way, it begs this question. It's a question we should all be conflicted with, uh, confronted with at times. And it's how are we as believers in Jesus Christ to be in these contentious times, in these volatile times, in these unpredictable times? How are we to live? How are we to choose? How are we to think and to act? What is the role of the church in these times? How are we to remain grounded when everything around us seems shaky? Right, I have little ones, and I'm particularly concerned about what this world's going to look like when they're older. But them and students and high school students, middle schoolers, college students, you guys are in the middle of this volatile world, right? And so my heart goes to you guys as you try to figure out how do you stand for truth when almost everyone around you champion something else? How do you pick a side on any debatable issue? What's your grid? What's your gauge? 
I've been uh, accruing this list on my phone for the last um, probably month of debatable issues, right? And so I've just been building this list, and I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with this. I feel like the Lord's been imprinting it on me. I'm not sure what to do with it, but it certainly has been useful as I think about the issues challenging our young people today. And so I want to read it to you. Is that okay? I don't care. I'm reading it anyways. Okay? The first on the list um, are the theological issues, right? This is a long list, by the way, but certainly of matters of debate, you'll find people on both sides, right? Theological issues such as how this world came into being. Uh, why is suffering and evil, why does it exist? What's our purpose? What's our destiny? What's our gauge for morality? But then my list gets pretty shotgun, right? It's just pretty scatterbrained here. It goes into sexual freedom issues, pornography, premarital sex, gender issues such as LGBTQ-related things. What do you think about environmentalism, naturalism? How is a Christian supposed to think about these things? Certainly all the po uh, political issues, right? Socialism, capitalism, communism. Um, which, by the way, a lot of young people are, are advocating for all of them <laughs> these days, it seems like. What's the basis for that? Patriotism, conservatism, liberalism. How about individualism and collectivism, right? The reason you couldn't find any toilet paper a year ago is because we are an individualistic society, which means we go and we hoard and we don't really care how you're going to, you know, supply for yourself. Instead of just going and taking only what we need so everybody else can go and take only what you need. You know we still had enough toilet paper in the world, right? It, there was plenty produced. Not to make a bigger deal about toilet paper this morning, right? The problem is that everybody's hoarding it because we're individualistic. How about human life issues? Abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, suicide. Certainly social justice issues, racism. Where are you on the BLM train? Planned Parenthood, how do you feel about these organizations? Gun control, animal rights, legalization of marijuana. Legalization of cocaine, as I found out after the end of last service. I guess in the Pacific Northwest, it's getting more and more, um, uh, or less and less, uh, you know, the, the, the charges are dropping more and more to where it's becoming more and more acceptable. Alcohol consumption, gambling, feminism, and the, uh, the role that that plays in womanhood and wifehood and modesty. Complementarianism between a husband and a wife. Intergenerational relationships. How am I as a 34-year-old man to feel about people older than me and younger than me? And then you have the classic debates of spiritualism, medicine, and science, and religion, and personal truth, and absolute truth. What about cancel culture? What's a Christian to respond? How, how are we to respond to that? What about when major celebrity, high-profile pastors fall terribly? I was a huge Ravi Zacharias fan. I really valued his voice. Am I allowed to quote him anymore? Am I allowed to think that anything he said was good? How is a Christian supposed to navigate those waters? Hedonism, the fancy word for, you know, in 2021, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm just going to do what feels right. That's hedonism. Mental illness, people are on all different sides of that spectrum. Dangers and benefits of social media. Dangers and benefits of major media. And I'm sure I missed a few thousand, but I think 40 plus is good enough to get us started. The point, do you know where you stand on these issues? And if you do, what was your process for coming to these conclusions? And then certainly the ultimate question, is your conclusion bringing glory and honor to Jesus Christ? That's the point. And I'm assuming that you're here because you want that. That's why I'm here. That's why I do what I will do. I want what I am about to be honoring to Jesus Christ in the way I live, 
and the, the views I take and the stances and claims that I make, I want them to honor Jesus Christ. And so if you want that too, then I believe that the Lord has a lot for us this morning. I, I really do. And so I'm looking forward to this. I want to invite Shelby uh, McConaughey up. She's going to read our passage in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. And we're going to go ahead and read the first four verses of this book. And so uh, would you, if you are capable, stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Good morning, church. Okay, if you're using the Bible in front of you, it's in um, page 1051. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false um, doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Thank you, Shelby. You can have a seat. So to start our time this morning, we're going to look, um, first of all, at the context of this passage, and then we're going to look at um, how this might shape the way we develop a biblical worldview and through which to see the world and to, to, to stake our claim, okay? And so the first thing I want to do is start at the beginning. Uh, it's a passage that Pastor Brett looked at last week in this, this address where we get a glimpse into the, the, the depth of intimacy of relationship between Paul and Timothy, right? His true son in the faith, he said. And this depth of relationship continues as he gives his address and he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is interesting. I wanted to make a note of it. And Pastor Brett and I were talking this week and he, he talked about how mercy is uh, in Paul's letter to Timothy, this is the only letter where Paul includes mercy. Every other one of his letters, he always says grace and peace to you, grace and peace to you, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Timothy, he says grace and mercy and peace to you. It might seem insignificant, but the fact that it's the only time that he mentions it, right, it might be somewhat telling of this unique relationship that they have, okay? And I think it comes from this. I think the Apostle Paul knew I think he knew what Timothy was up against. Not only that, if you look through chapter 1, mercy is a huge thing, right? The Apostle Paul, uh, overwhelmed by his own testimony, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, he says in verse 13. And yet, because of God's mercy, he used Paul greatly for the kingdom of God, right? So mercy is a huge theme of chapter 1. But not only that, Paul's, uh, Paul is completely aware of Timothy's difficult context of ministry. And it's difficult. It certainly is. And we're going to look at it in coming weeks. But we get a glimpse of it here uh, starting in verse 3. He says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Okay. Some scholars believe that Paul was telling him to remain because Timothy didn't want to. The context was just too difficult. Not, to, not only that, Timothy was young. Right? He was uh, somewhat timid, maybe. If you kind of uh, look at a character study, it seems to, you know, Paul's words to him seem like he's always trying to encourage him to lift him up. Right? And yet, you know, every record we have of Timothy is of, of uh, complete faithfulness. But listen, 
Paul encourages Timothy to remain in Ephesus to instruct the people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. There's our glimpse into the difficult context he was in. It's kind of our context as well, right? But let's get a a fuller grasp on on what these uh, false doctrines were. First of all, he says false doctrine, right? In the Greek, this combines the words hetero, which means different, and didasco, which means teaching. So it's different teaching, false doctrine. And it's false because it's different from what? Well, the true doctrine, the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's false doctrine. It's false teaching. And it is something that Timothy is to instruct people against. Don't give in to that. And then he goes on to say, pay uh, or, or instruct people not also to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Right? And so if you look at the context of, of Timothy's, you know, ministry, there's kind of two mythologies that he's uh, dealing with. And the first is pretty clear from chapter 1. It's Judaic mythology. We're calling it mythology because it's myths, as he says. Okay? There's many false doctrines, by the way, that come um, from the Jewish tradition that does not believe in the, the deity and the identity of Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah, right? That's why you read through the New Testament, there's all these issues of circumcision and the law and all of that stuff that people are going back and forth on, certainly false doctrine. But even so, at this point in time in Ephesus, he refers to these myths, probably a reference to some Gnostic roots taking hold. Um, mingling with the Jewish tradition and faith. And so people are getting blurred about it. They're trying to mix fancy philosophy with, with their faith and their religion. And what it's leading to is what he'll call empty speculation. Okay. It's also very possible that this is a literal uh, reference to myths. Jewish mythology, I don't know if you knew this, but Jewish tradition, they have a folklore. They have a mythology to them. For example, I don't know if any of you saw the movie Noah back in 2014 by uh, Russell Crowe plays Noah in the flood account. Anybody see that movie? Anybody have a problem with that movie? Why? Rock monsters, (laughs) right? That's why. Uh, Somehow in that account, there was these rock monsters uh, that came and they helped they were like the fallen angels, and they helped Noah build the ark. And, of course, every cushion was like, that's not biblically accurate, right? Which, if it was biblically accurate, it would be a four-minute movie because the whole flood account's in, like, six verses, okay? But even so, right, what these writers did who were Jewish, not Christian, they, they, they adopted Jewish folklore into that. And so these rock monsters in Jewish mythology are called golems, and it's a part of their tradition, Okay? And so they have their own version of all of that, and I think it's probably all on the table. But not only that, he refers to these genealogies, endless genealogies. As one commentator put it, probably a wider reference describing extravagant interpretations of Old Testament history mingled, once again, with Gnostic philosophical notions. Now, Ephesus was a place of learning. It was a place of higher thought. Uh, in fact, in the middle of Ephesus, Ephesus, there's this amphitheater devoted to such thinking and debates. And we have a picture for you. Um, and it shows you um, eventually. You got that, Josh? There you go, my man. Thank you. Um, this is the amphitheater. Seats about 24 to 25,000 people. This is what you'll see in Ephesus if you visited it today. And it was uh, where they would do all forms of entertainment, including, you know, gladiator kind of stuff and, uh, you know, fighting beasts and that kind of stuff. But also they would come 
to this place, and they would have giant philosophical debate. All of the philosophical leaders and religious leaders would meet on the dance floor and have it out with each other, and everybody would come and watch and partake and yell and shout. It was part of what they did because they were known for their high thinking. And so even systems of faith would have a hard time resisting the pull to mingle philosophical myths with their own traditions. So there's Judaic mythology, but there's also secular mythology, and this is huge, right? Timothy is in Ephesus, which is home of the temple Diana slash Artemis, whether you're Greek or Roman. It's the mythological goddess of the hunt and of fertility. And what we have here is a picture of a, uh, a smaller scale of it that you can also see in modern-day Turkey, which is where Ephesus was. Um, this isn't the original thing. Otherwise, that stands the test of time pretty well. Uh, but they built this as a replica, right? The original was bigger than a football field. It was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, right? You've probably seen those books of the seven. It's one of those right there in Ephesus, right there in Timothy's context, where they worshiped the goddess Diana. The place was huge. It was made completely out of marble. It had 127 columns um, that were 60 feet high, um, each one supporting what they estimated to be 24-ton marble blocks. And it's a feat that nobody really can explain how they did it, which is why most Ephesians, a lot of Ephesians, believe that Artemis herself built the place. And so it was a place and a city devoted to the worship of this goddess. Not only that, the place was filled with idols, made by human hands, craftsmen uh, with silver and wood and all kinds of metals and materials and made these idols that they would uh, decorate the place with and also sell uh, for tourism, right, which is a huge deal. People would come from, from all over to worship in this place. Idol making was part of the industry of the city. This place was the center of, of the city's primary place of worship to the goddess. It was also the center of banking. It was also the center of prostitution. And that cult leaders who the goddess Diana had organized a sex industry, all in the name of the fertility goddess. And so visitors and tourists would come from everywhere to partake in all of it. (laughs) That's Timothy's context. He was fighting it his whole life until church tradition says that when he was 80 years old, he dies, martyred, beaten and stoned to death as he tries to preach the gospel at a worship service to Diana. That's what church tradition says about it. So... It runs deep. Judaic mythology, secular idolatry and mythology, all of the philosophy that penetrates all of that, all of the Gnosticism, all of it, false teachings jumbled together, blurring the line across all of them, and it leads to endless, constant, pointless debate, which is why the Apostle Paul says here at the end of verse 4, these promote empty speculations. Rather, the God's plan was operative by faith. Empty speculations, he later calls them fruitless discussions because they were fruitless as it pertained to any good fruit. It certainly had negative fruit leading to false indoctrination and distraction, right? Which is why he says, instruct people to not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Don't give them the time of day. Don't let them distract you from the true gospel. That's the risk. Now, back in uh, chapter 18, you can read about Paul's initial time in Ephesus, and it's pretty interesting. I'd encourage you to go read that. And what you'll read um, is Paul and his guys just killing it. I mean, people are like burning their magic books and renouncing their old sinful ways of, of living, and they're giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And it's awesome until some guys, a craftsman, Uh, take it as a personal threat, and it was probably getting to the point where it was hurting the economy of the city, and so they decide to cause a riot. 
right? And so what they did is they rallied everybody up, these idol makers and these craftsmen. They were able to rile up the whole city. And they find their way in the amphitheater. Everybody's roused up. Everybody's uh, uh, frenzied, right? And they make their way to the amphitheater to, to have it out with these people who are preaching about the way is how they called it, right? And the description that we read about this is, it's funny to me, and maybe you'll see the humor in it. I don't know. Acts chapter 19, verse 32. This is what happens when they get to the amphitheater, right? Now they're having this issue and this big riot. It says, some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Do you think that's funny? I think it's funny. I think it's a really hilarious summary of today. People shouting making their claims, and nobody knows why. Nobody knows what they're even saying. Nobody knows why they're even there, but the part of the assembly. It's usually led by a few loud and aggressive people that are leading the charge, but what it produces is a bunch of pointless back and forth that just adds to the confusion, and then there's just tons of randoms there because there's excitement and there is fury and there is frenzy and so they're there but they're confused and they have no idea what they're doing but they're there remember the, the list i read to you earlier i can't tell you how often i end up in conversations with people or hear about people who 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 speak and they they uh their presence in the chaos and in the assembly they're shouting their thing but they have no idea they're shouting. They have no idea why they're there. They're confused, and it is absolutely clear with the words that come out of their mouth. They don't even know what they're saying. Now, people without Christ, I get this, right? It's fun to pick a side and run with it. I get it. Everybody's a devil's advocate. I have an easier time reconciling that behavior, but what I can't make sense of are the believers in Jesus Christ who have their Bible in their hand, and they're just following the loudest voice that there is. You claim Christ, you have your Bible, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the church, and yet you're still just marching with the masses following whoever is loudest. Believers who endorse organizations known for killing unborn children. Believers who champion the cause of the LGBTQ community because they have a friend or relative in it. Believers who feel that women's rights means the right to ignore biblical principles of womanhood and wifehood and modesty. Believers who are okay risking all of the proven trappings of a casino, including gambling addiction and drugs and an increased sex industry, all in the name of bringing money to the city. Male believers who disregard the real struggles of women. Caucasian believers who disregard, disregard the real struggles experienced by African Americans. The believers I don't understand. You have Christ in your heart. You have the Holy Spirit in your head. You have the word in your hands. You have the church in your ears. You've got to start using them to determine what the heck you're about. I understand personal experience is strong. Feelings and emotions can run high. Cultural trends and fancy ideologies, they're attractive, I get it. But it's all shaky. They're all unfit to be the grid through which believers create their worldview. A worldview dictates how you live, what you believe, how you decide, what you stand for, how you change, how you grow. Everyone has this code that they live by, and for me, I want my code to match God's way, to bring him glory. Do you want that too? I hope that you do. 
And so in order to get there, I want us to look at Paul's advice once again in here and look at, at how he might, and the word might educate our worldview. What is a biblical worldview and how can we pursue that? And it's a series of questions, and these questions are in appropriate order. The first is this. Is your worldview centralized on Jesus Christ? Is he the centerpiece of your view? At the end of chapter 4, sorry, at the end of verse 4, it says these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith, right? You have everything empty and everything false over here, and then you have God's plan, decisively God's plan. This is what it means for Jesus to be the centerpiece, is to actually pursue God's plan above everything else, right? And so it's the question, do I genuinely want to live according to God's plan rather than being distracted by the infinite number of isms and ideologies and teachings and myths of our day? And if so, it's the question, am I ready to truly seek God's answers to the deepest questions of life, the origin of all things, the condition of purpose, uh, the, the condition of, uh, of humanity, our purpose, and, and all that is involved with that. Our gauge for morality. What's our destiny? What's next, you know, in this life? Are we, are we going to look at Jesus' answers for all of these things first and foremost? Because, by the way, any proper worldview, biblical worldview, will start with Jesus being the centerpiece of it all because he is the center of it all. He is the answer to everything. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 is a passage you probably know well by now because we quote it a lot. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him, in him, and on earth. Sorry, created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It's all his. He's the center of it. He's the centerpiece. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. If he wasn't the point, then nothing would hold together. It's all intact. And that's exactly what happens when he's not the point. When he's not the center, things dissipate. Things get, become empty speculations. Nothing's holding it together. A biblical worldview begins by seeing Jesus as the purpose and point of everything. Not someone else. Not some other philosophy or ideology or thought. Not some political view. Not yourself. But him. He is the center. And from there you can work forward. Now this is good. But there are certainly people that just because, you know, their motive might be right, you know, they, they, they want to honor Jesus. They want him to be the centerpiece, right? By the way, everything we just talked about, this idea of centralized on Jesus, it's a motive, right? They, their motives are right, but they have bad doctrine. Bad doctrine, right? Or as the Bible might say, great zeal, but with little knowledge. It's kind of a dangerous combination, right? So the second question you must ask yourself is this, is my worldview consistent with the Bible, right? I want to honor Jesus. I want him to be the centerpiece of everything, and I've made some, you know, decisions, and I choose this side of the bait, and all of that stuff, well, is your choice, is your decision, is your way consistent with the scripture? This is true doctrine that he speaks about, you know, he says uh, to not teach false doctrine, but to teach true doctrine. That's how you know if it's false or true. Is it the gospel or not? This is the test. This is the test through which you run everything, right? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 says, but test all things and hold on to what is good. I love that verse. It's so strong, right? You take all of the stuff in the world and you put it into the strainer, right, of, of a worldview, of, of the scriptures. 
right? And you let everything pour through, and then what you have remaining is, is what is pure, and you can discard the contaminants. That's the idea. The Bible is your strainer. You run everything through it. You test everything through it. And what it holds, you chuck. And what it lets through, you let through into your heart and into your life. And this is good. But just because you have a good motive, and just because the Bible has proven what is good, doesn't mean that you are living what is good. And so we got to ask another question. Is your worldview conditioned by faith? It says here at the end of verse 4, it says these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. How does God's plan operate by faith? Well, God doesn't need to operate by faith in his own plan as if like, well, I hope it, I hope it comes to fruition. It's us. We are the operational part because we have to operate by faith to live in God's plan. And so it's conditioned by, uh, by, by uh, faith. It's this conviction. This is surrender. Right? I want to honor Jesus, and the Bible has showed me what's true, and I'm convicted enough and surrendered enough to it to start living it. Right? Condition means determined or to bring into a desired state. It's to bring it into, a, into uh, the state of your living. And so this is where the believer says, and this is crucial, it says, I, the, the believer says, I see that this way is right before Jesus. It's consistent with the scriptures. He's the center of it. I see that, but it's not how I grew up. It's not popular. It's not something my family believes. It's not going to sit well with my progressive friends. People will think I'm a hypocrite because I spent so much of my life uh, thinking something different. But today I will choose to believe that having this resolve and living this way is glorifying to God and can be used for his kingdom because he is Lord. It's a hard decision for many people who grew up for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years thinking something different. And now because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they say, well, I truly want to honor God. That's their motive. And they finally run that thing, whatever it is, through the scriptures, and they find out, oh, my gosh, I was right. Are you willing to adjust your living to that? Or will you let pride get in the way? Hebrews eleven six says, now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you have that confidence? By the way, you hold to a biblical worldview, you're not going to have a ton of reward in this world. I'm just telling you. If you're thinking about physical reward and all that kind of stuff, you're not going to have a lot of it. But do you, in faith, believe that his reward for you that transcends this world will be better? And if so, then you can pursue that if you're convinced of that. And this is good. But we need another question. Because there are those who make their stand and they believe their motives are pure. Their stance passes the biblical test. And they're fully convicted and surrendered to the cause, right? Uh, and, and you know about it probably more than you want because these are the keyboard warriors. These are the faithful church attenders who, who are content whining about everything but not doing anything. These are the people who probably have everything right up to a point, but they have zero concern for people. Zero concern. These people are mighty in the church. They're everywhere. And so the last question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is your worldview concerned for others? Does it create a concern in your heart for the souls of people who need Jesus Christ? This is the effect of a biblical worldview. And it's mighty. And it's basically the theme of the rest of Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I reversed those. 1 Timothy chapter 2 starting in verse 1 says this. 
First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Good, isn't it? Now, if you were reading that rightly, you have a big theological question in your heart right now, don't you? If God Almighty wants everyone to be saved, then why aren't they? If God Almighty wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth, then why don't they? And we'll get to that whenever we start chapter 2, and I'm looking forward to it. But for now, I pray that you would just see God's heart, which is that he wants everyone's soul to be saved. He has a genuine concern for the souls of everyone, and as believers in Jesus Christ, we should as well. This should be the effect of our biblical worldview. By the way, like I said before, this is appropriately in order. You cannot start here. You cannot put a concern for others up there. Otherwise, you will give in to anything to accommodate people's emotions and feelings, but it can be completely inconsistent with the Bible. It could be about anything else other than Jesus, and it's not conditioned by faith. It's driven by emotion and the feelings of others and people-pleasing. This is not good. You cannot start here. This is appropriately number four on the list. Even so, you, you don't have to let disrespect um, be a theme of your disagreement. You don't have to be a jerk about it, right? If you disagree with people in your life, we have too many jerky Christians who are just, well, my way is the way. I'm going to let you know about it. I don't care what you think, blah, blah, blah. Don't care. Like, that's just, that's a terrible attitude. It doesn't match anything that the Lord has. Believers in Christ should be accustomed to disagreement and that our worldview is quite different than the world's view. But disagreement does not need to be disrespectful. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says to speak the truth in love. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says to always give a reason for your answer with gentleness and respect. You say you have a heart for the soul of your friends and your family. And you keep hiding the truth in order to stay on their good side. This is not the best way to reach them with the hope of the gospel. It's not. Also, the best way... It's not by bullying people with the truth. That doesn't work either. People don't have any, any capacity to hear from you if they don't think that you care about them. The best way is to claim truth and to speak it, but with a genuine concern for others that is marked by love and gentleness and respect. I gave you a list of 40 issues of debate earlier. My guess is a room this size, many of us have had all-out arguments about many of those things. But personally, today, I, I believe that Christ has truly given us everything we need to address every single one. Now, I haven't done it yet, but I want to be in that process, and I hope that you will too. And I want to do it all with a, a genuine concern with people after I know that I'm consistent with the word and centralized on Jesus and conditioned by faith. But the question is still the same. Where are you in it all? What do you hold so fast to? What are you so passionate about? And Why? Why? Is it just because the pressure of the culture is so strong that you can't help but to just be a part of it? You've joined the assembly, but you don't know why? You don't know why you're there? Ask yourself, why do you hold so strongly to the convictions that you have? And is your involvement in whatever that debate is, whatever that issue is, is it bringing glory to Jesus Christ? That's the question. And if you can't answer that question with a clear conscience, 
then I challenge you to give it an honest look, to run your convictions through the grid of a biblical worldview. Is it centralized on Jesus? Is it consistent with the Bible? Is it conditioned by faith? And does it lead to a genuine concern for the souls of others? Let's pray. Our God, we are humbled at your word, grateful that you want everyone to be saved, that the motive of your heart is for the good of all. And God, you've put your church here to advance that good by sharing the love of Jesus Christ, by preaching and teaching the true doctrine. God, I pray that anyone in here who has been distracted from the true doctrine and, true doctrine and has given themselves to, uh, to endless myths and genealogies and isms and all of the other things that are so pressing in our culture today, I pray that you would uh, uh, let them have a silent moment before you today where they bring that conviction and they bring that stance before you and say, why do I believe this? And then let you speak into it. God, that you would make us all people who stand on truth and speak truth in love and in gentleness and respect. God, that we would not be bigots and that we would not be angry people who are, who are just sad whenever we don't have our way. But God, that we would have a genuine concern for other people matched with a genuine love and passion for the authentic, real truth and doctrine of Jesus Christ. And that we would live in this world with that uh, accordingly. Would you do this work among us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're closing in one last song, and we don't have a big response time because the song is Be Thou My Vision. Seems like a fitting prayer, doesn't it? Every, after everything we've discussed. And so as we stand and sing, and you are invited to stand and sing now, as we stand and sing, would you let this be the prayer of your heart this morning?